0: um, I'm going to admit something to you, I was a little unsettled all week really, Um, kind of in my spirit, my heart, the elders and deacons will tell you that, well actually they probably won't, Um, and uh, so this morning Chris and I were driving in and it was just starting to snow and um, fully intending to preach from Leviticus Chapter 2 this morning, it's a um, good time of year to preach from Leviticus, I guess. And just sort of as we got here, and, and uh, the the roads were not great, and and people were texting me and asking, you know, or saying that they weren't going to be here and all of that, just sort of the normal stuff, um, just kind of was just unsettled about the Leviticus uh, passage, and so turn to Mark chapter 4, we're going do something just a little bit different, so bear with me a little bit this morning, I, even just before, even just as we were singing that song, I, I was kind of thinking, maybe I need to go back and just hold fast to the gospel this morning, which was a message that Steve prayed when he got up to pray, um, to hold fast to the gospel. So, we're going to look at uh, a passage from Mark chapter 4. When I was growing up, um, my Sunday school teacher's name was Leona Golden. Mrs. Golden was a sweet lady who loved God. She loved to teach us kids about the truths of His Word. I remember our classroom was in the corner of the basement of the Santa Barnstead Christian Church, It's an old New England church, um, white steeple, what you'd think of. I remember that she would get out flannel graphs, stick them to the board and tell the stories. And you've got to be a Gen X or older to know what a flannel graph is. I can't remember any of the specific stories that she told us, but I knew that she cared deeply for us. She was concerned for our spiritual condition, the kids in her class. She wanted us to know and to love Jesus Christ as our own Savior. My only problem was, all growing up, I always thought of the stories that she told us just sort of nice little stories. I never really made the connection that the flannel graph men that she would stick on the board were actually real people, that they lived and died, that they actually caught real fish, they had to make a living doing hard, back-breaking work, or that this, I never really understood that this Jesus that she taught us about was a real human being but he was also fully God. And that this Jesus, when he called people to follow him, he didn't mean just walk behind me. He wanted them to give up everything in order to give their lives completely in submission to Jesus Christ, to himself. It isn't Mrs. Golden's fault that I didn't really get it. She was trying her best to teach me and Adam and Eric and Colby and the kids in my class to teach us about our need for a Savior. I had no idea that I didn't understand. I thought I understood. And so sure, I, I, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was like five. But I was five. What did I know about discipleship? What did I know about bearing my, a cross? about dying to self, about being adopted into the family of God. All I knew was I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't really understand that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. I was afraid. So I went to my dad one time, and I asked him. I told him my fears, and he led me in a prayer because that's what he knew. It wasn't until much later that I started to really understand Jesus' call to discipleship and that it is an, an all-encompassing uh, call, which is why we, we use the term conversion to talk about becoming a Christian, because we're completely new people. We've been born again. And so even now, today, as we teach our children, as we lead our children to Christ, we have to remember it's not a one-time thing. We lead them to Christ every day. We lead them to the throne. We lead them to the cross. We teach them about His grace and His mercy. We show them the love of Christ every day. So that when they get it, and not just when they're five, when they get it, when they start to get it, when they're able to make your faith their faith, they will start to, to understand these things. So I think that's what happened. Um, I think what happened is that we have sort of tamed Jesus' teachings and tamed His parables in such a way that that we've turned them into into sort of moralistic, inspirational fables. It shouldn't be surprising, if our kids don't believe in Hansel and Gretel, why would they believe in Peter and James and John? Why would they believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, I'm not saying don't teach your kids Bible stories. I'm not saying uh, flannel graphs. I, I think we actually ought to bring back, put the tablets away and bring back a flannel graph. I'm saying teach them what the Bible says about being a Christian. Because I think what Jesus is doing in this parable that we're going to look at today is not just show us how parables work, which He does, He's showing us here how salvation works. This is a parable about the gospel. And so I want to read, I'm going to read Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 33, and we're really going to look at verses 10 to 20. So Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so they got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teachings he said to them, "'Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and some birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, since it had no root. It withered away.' Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell in the good soil, and produced grain, growing up and and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, but... The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that are sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. he said to them, is a the lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and Rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain on the ear. When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, and yet... When it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them, and they were able to hear it. This is God's word. Let me just pray here. Lord, I pray that you would, um, Christ would increase, that I would decrease. I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Remind us of the good news of the gospel this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here are some questions I think the disciples might have had at some point during the time that they were with Jesus, during his three years of ministry. And I think maybe some of us have some of these same questions. Why do some people appear to be with us and then leave. Were they ever really with us? What about Judas? Judas was in leadership. Was he ever really one of them? Is it just something that uh, that we've come to call backsliding, or is there something more going on to all of this? Maybe the disciples had a question like this. Why do some believe and others do not believe when we all hear the same message? We're all sitting in the same room. We're all hearing the same sermon. Why do some believe and others reject? Or maybe they think this question, how do we who are dead in our sins become alive in Christ? I believe this parable answers all of those questions. And I also believe, because Jesus tells us in verse 13 here, that understanding this parable is key to understanding all of his parables. Now, obviously, as I read through this, we can see that Jesus tells this parable to the large crowd early in the chapter that had gathered by the sea once again, it says. But then sometime later, as he was with only the twelve and maybe a few others, he explained the parable just to them, just to that small group. And he points out to his disciples that, they are only, that there really are only four different types of people who will hear the Word of God. And the first type of person who will hear the Word of God is the hard-hearted, the hard-hearted. Jump down to verse 14. Listen to verses 14 and 15 again. The sower sows the Word, and these are the ones along the path where the Word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the Word that is sown in them. Some people in our society have already judged Jesus. They've already come to the conclusion that Jesus is not their Savior and they have rejected Him. There may be people like that in your family. Probably there are. Probably there are people like that that you work with, friends, neighbors. They've heard of this Jesus maybe even all their lives. They don't really know much about Him. They just have heard things, and they reject Him. You can show them the evidence. You can plead with them. You can pray for them, and yet still they reject Christ. Some of them are nice people. (laughs) Some of these people are people that we like, love. The last thing we want is to think about them spending an eternity in hell apart from Christ. And yet still some of them will reject Christ with a smile on their face. It's not just that they have not yet accepted Christ. That may happen, and we pray that it does. We don't stop spreading the seed for them, but they have hard hearts. And when the seed is spread, the birds immediately take it away. When we proclaim the word of life, Satan immediately steps in and snatches it away. They've rejected Christ. I'm going to leave this question hanging out there because I believe the answer is found right in this passage. What causes their hard-hearted rejection of Jesus? What causes that? Well, the second type of heart or person that we see here is the shallow heart. Shallow heart. This is where things will get a little bit sticky. It's easy to see when someone has clearly rejected Jesus, that their heart has been hardened. That's easy to tell. Usually they'll say, yeah, that's good for you, but I'm, I'm not interested. Maybe they're angry about Jesus, but it's easy to tell. But what about those who maybe prayed the sinner's prayer at one point, went forward at some sort of altar call, or maybe even were baptized, but have since walked away? Those who maybe even were active in the church at one point in their life, but for whatever reason, they don't attend anymore. Well, look what Jesus says about people who have no root. Verses 16 and 17. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. These are the people who hear the word with kind of a a hasty, enthusiastic, but ultimately shallow profession of acceptance. It lasts only a short time because the word, the, 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 the logos, takes no root in them. And so when tribulations and hardships and persecution or trouble comes in, like the hot sun, which we can only imagine these days, they quickly fall away, right? Our English translations leave a little to be desired here in that passage because fall away, or I think the King James actually says stumble there, um, give offense, none of them really gets at the severity of this phrase. The word there is actually where we get our English word for scandalous. It means to abandon sound doctrine, to scandalize the faith, to walk away from the faith. It's not saying that once a person becomes a Christian... Once a person puts their faith in Christ as their savior, once they are adopted into the, into the family of God and given the right to be called a child of God, this is not saying that they can give up or lose their salvation. The Bible is very, very clear about that. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 38 to 40, he said this, for uh, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And our favorite verse, at least mine, is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's nothing you can do. All true believers will persevere to the end. Doesn't mean we won't stumble. Doesn't mean we won't go through some even very dark times. It means just what I said. All believers, those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, will persevere until the end. Again, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one can remove you from Christ's hand. No one. Not even you. Not even yourself. If you are a believer, you will never perish. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus ever. Maybe I just need to say that to myself, right? We need to remember that. There is no condemnation. And if that is true, if those words are true, then who is Jesus talking about here in Mark um, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17? Listen again to verse 16. These are the ones sown on the rocky ground. So he's explaining the parable. He says this. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They immediately receive it with joy. They raise their hand. They go forward and talk to the pastor. They accept Jesus into their heart as a child when they're afraid of a thunderstorm or or whatever. Is that what salvation is? Is salvation a momentary decision, often based on, frankly, an emotional response? Is that what salvation is? Does the Bible anywhere paint that picture of salvation? Not really. Now, we have to be careful here because I am not saying that someone who goes through some kind of emotional experience, maybe they hear a particularly moving sermon, Someone who goes through something difficult. I'm not saying that 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 person isn't saved just because they accepted Jesus into their heart or asked Jesus into their heart. See, true conversion to Christianity may or may not involve an emotionally heated experience, right? It might or might not be something even that you can put a date on. Look at what Jesus says about this person in verse 17 again. They have no root in themselves, endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. I think we're seeing this um, all across American Christianity at the moment. It is becoming less and less popular to be um, Bible-believing Christians hasn't been popular for a while, but it's getting worse. And we're seeing, in fact, there are terms for this now: deconstruction, deconversion, exvangelical. That's that's what Jesus is talking about. People who are a part of the church for a long time, and they blame the church often for now not wanting anything to do with the church or Christ. I said before this the word here for fall away it actually means to abandon sound doctrine or to abandon the teaching. Sound d- doctrine means teaching. To abandon sound doctrine or abandon the teaching. And so the idea here is that when things get difficult because of the demands of Christian discipleship, or because it's not popular anymore, because of the teachings of Christ, teachings that are literally countercultural, these people walk away. They said initially, Yeah, I want to go to heaven, I want to get saved. But when he tells the rich young man that he needs to give up all that he has before he can have eternal life, it wasn't because he, he didn't want the man to be wealthy. It was because he knew that money was his ultimate idol. He was not willing to give those things up. When Jesus starts talking about taking up your cross daily, about losing your own life in order to follow him, it makes, makes many people say, Whoa, wait a minute. I don't think I signed up for this. And they just kind of drift off. They stop going to church stop hanging out with Christians. They drift back into their old way of life. Why? Well, according to the Bible, according to Jesus, they never really believed. I said before that all true believers will persevere until the end. I also believe that the, the converse of that is also true. All those who persevere to the end have been truly reborn. Jesus, again in John in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word and are truly my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is the truth. He says that in John 14 the way, the truth, and the life. And it is in Christ that we find freedom. The third type of person here, um, hearing God's Word, is a person who we could call has a divided heart. Verses 18 and 19 says this, and others were the ones sown among the thorns. There are those who hear the Word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the Word and it proves unfruitful. One of the keys to understanding Jesus' message, the keys to understanding the gospel, is to understand that that salvation doesn't simply come through uh, belief. Now hear me carefully here. Belief is only half of the equation. James reminds us that even, even demons believe, when you read all through, especially Mark's gospel, and Jesus comes upon somebody who is demon-possessed, they always reveal themselves to him. In fact, I think it's in chapter 2 of Mark. I know who you are, the demon says, the Holy One of God. They know, they believe, and they're terrified of him. See, belief is only half of the equation. The other half of the equation is repentance. That's where the third example in Jesus' parable fits in, and this is all tied up in faith. See, Jesus' message of the gospel was not, ask Jesus into your heart. It was not, repeat after me, say these words. Jesus' message of the gospel uh, was was not... repeat after me Jesus' message of the gospel was repent and believe repent and believe there are people who claim Christianity and, and, and maybe, maybe even people here who claim Christianity but their lives show absolutely no evidence of being a disciple of Jesus Christ I'm telling you this because I love you telling you this because this is true in every church there are those who believe that they are christians because they've had some experience they did something when they were a kid and they're not really a disciple of christ one does not become a christian by simply praying a prayer one becomes a christian by repenting and believing in the gospel of jesus christ by submitting to jesus christ what Jesus is talking about here in this third group of people, the ones sown among the thorns, he's saying that, that at least for a while they claim Christianity, but in reality they're hung up on the cares and the riches of this world. He actually names, names three competing concerns there. The cares of the world. Literally, the distracting worries of life. Children. <laughs> Relationship problems. Work. Housework, yard work, car trouble, home maintenance, that project that you haven't finished yet, sick relatives, family time, sports, the list could go on and on and on, right? Those things are distracting worries of life that we all have. And Jesus says, after he mentions the cares of the world, he says the deceitfulness of riches. This is the deceptive lure of wealth, the love of money. Jesus is saying that a heart which is overcome with a love for riches and the things of this world is not a believing heart. He said that very clearly in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, when he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and dis- love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Can can he get any clearer than that? Jesus had a lot to say about money. And then the third one here is the desire for other things. Verse 19, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. It's kind of a catch-all phrase. It means everything else anything other than God. One pastor um, said that idolatry is making good things into ultimate things. That's what all of those things are, those things that I just sort of said a minute ago. They're good things, right? Children are a blessing from God. They're good things, most of them. All of them. Your family is good. Your work is good. Housework is good. Sports are fine. Work hard. Love your family. Make a lot of money. That's fine. But don't let them become the thorns that choke out the Word, the Logos, the Jesus, out of your life. See, these people, they claim to be Christians And it began really well. They looked like they were believers, but the love of the world choked out any evidence that their claims of being a follower of Jesus Christ were true. And in reality, Jesus says they were never really converted. Listen to what John says in his first letter. 1 John 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of, the, of God abides forever. Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop there. Because for those of us who are believers... Our salvation will provide evidence in its fruit. We will be able to prove by the life we live that we are His. (coughs) We will put off the old and put on the new. You will, if you are a believer, you will give evidence of waging a war against your sin, even when you continue to stumble. Listen how Jesus concludes his explanation here of this parable in verse 20. He says, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirty-fold and sixty-fold and a hundred-fold. If, uh, if you're someone who writes in your Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and do that, by the way. I want you to notice and maybe circle the word here. But those are the ones, um, verse 20, but those are the ones that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, who hear the word. It's used in each of the, the four examples that Jesus gives here, each person that he's talking about. But in the first three, it's used actually in a passive way. It's, it's spoken in the passive voice. Do you, you ever have the radio on or the TV on or something? And you can hear it, but you have no idea what it's talking about. You're doing something else. You're not paying attention because you, you're doing other things have your attention. That's, that's the image of the first three, the hearing in the first three. The, the word is being spoken over there. And I hear it, but I'm not really listening to it. But but in this final one, it is an active verb. Hear, the word is not passive. You are hearing it actively, listening to it, accepting it. The picture is that they stop and listen. And they're really listening. And so when Jesus begins this parable up in verse 3 with the word listen... And he ends it in verse 9 with, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's essentially praying for the soil where he's throwing the seed. Listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This parable is a key to understanding, I think, all of Jesus' parables. He said this right up in verse 13. Let me read this again. He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Listen, in the first part of this parable, it is Jesus that is sowing the word. We've seen this um, as we've walked through. If, if you walk through, we've, we've gone through Mark's gospel and we've gone through John's gospel in the years that I've been here. Jesus is constantly preaching, he's constantly teaching. And, uh, I don't always like red-letter Bibles, but I have one, and I like it mostly. When you look in John's Gospel, so much of the letters are Jesus preaching and giving us His Word. Jesus preaching wherever He goes. Jesus is preaching constantly. If He's not preaching to the crowds, He's preaching to His disciples. And all along the way, some of this seed that he is sowing, is falling along the path. And the Pharisees and the scribes, with their hard hearts, are rejecting him. They're hearing what he's saying, and they are rejecting him. Some of the seed that he is sowing falls on the rocky ground where it doesn't have much soil. It it, it doesn't take root, and, and the crowds wander off when the preaching and teaching gets hard when the commitment level increases and people find better things to do. Jesus is going to see this. In John chapter 6, we saw when we were studying John's gospel about the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, we saw these incredible miracles that, that everybody has heard of. We have this phrase, walking on water. So and so walks on water. They're actually, it's just a phrase in society that everybody understands. It's about Jesus. Immediately after he begins to teach them, immediately after um, he walks on water, immediately after he feeds the five thousand, he begins to teach them what it means that he is the bread of life. And verse 60 says this is John chapter 6, verse 60 says and when many of his disciples heard it they said this is a hard saying who can listen to it and then John 6:66 6, says after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him they heard and then they said we can't listen to this anymore the crowds When the miracles aren't enough anymore, the crowds leave him. We see this in in churches too. As the teaching gets more difficult, people tend to drift off until eventually they're not here anymore. And as Jesus is teaching and is preaching, some of the seed that He that He cast, some of the Word that He is teaching. it fell among the thorns. And while they claimed to be disciples, they claimed to be Christians, the lure of 30 pieces of silver got in the way of Judas, right? It got in the way of his commitment to his Savior. And so some of the seed did fall onto good soil. We think immediately of the rest of the disciples who would go on to be apostles. Maybe some of the women in Jesus' life who were, who were with him to the end, even staying with him at the cross, even visiting his tomb. But even they, on the night when he was arrested, on the night that he was tried and the next morning crucified, even his disciples scattered in fear. John followed at a distance. Peter followed a little behind him. The shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. Peter denied him when it got the most difficult. But Jesus restored his true disciples. He essentially called Peter back into ministry when he told him three times to feed his sheep. He restored him. He forgave him. And that seed produced grain. And it grew up and increased and yielded 30-fold and 60-fold and 100 how much, how much fruit has Peter produced even to this day? Or John, who wrote half the New Testament. Or Paul, who wrote essentially the other half. Well, Luke wrote a lot of it too. The final part of this parable, when Jesus explains it to his disciples... He's saying if you're a Christian, if you're a true believer, you are now the sower. You're not a soil tester. (laughs) You're a sower. Jesus doesn't just throw uh, throw the seed on the good soil, he throws it everywhere. He throws it on the path, on the rocks, on the thorns, on the good soil, he throws it everywhere. And that is our job, right? Go and make disciples, preach the word. Because frankly, we we can't tell the difference between the soils most of the time. But go back to the beginning here of this section, chapter uh, 4, verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parable, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So let me ask you this question. How do people get saved? I would submit to you that it is all God's doing. No one saves themselves. He uses means, ordinary means, regular means, the preaching of his word. Someone must tell. There are none who seek after God, however. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and we saw this recently, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. He will say in chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly, foolishness to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, some see the gospel as a as totally saving and others see the gospel as totally ridiculous and it is only God who gets to decide which camp we fall into. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Jesus is quoting here in verses 11 Uh, well, verse 12, really, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. That's that great scene where Isaiah is being called of the Lord, where Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Every missionary loves to use that passage. But just a couple of chapters later, we see that 90% of the people Isaiah preached to rejected God. 90%, 90%, oh, oh, a vast majority of the people that I, who heard the word from Isaiah walked away in disbelief. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Most of the people who hear the word, they're not going to believe. But he doesn't say, just throw it on the good soil. He tells us to keep throwing it out there and leave the soil work up to God. So... For those of us here who are Christians today, no matter what category we really are in, um, I would say three things. First is this, be very careful. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 tells us, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Be sure that you really believe. Test to see whether or not you are really in the faith. Trust in Him. Continue to repent every day of your sin and trust in Christ. Second, be humble. Salvation is all of grace. I I contribute, I contribute nothing to my salvation except the sin that makes it necessary it's all the free gift of grace through the faith that has been given to me by God And so we must be humble and then the third thing is be hopeful be hopeful spread that seed pray for those people your family your friends Your neighbors, your co workers. Keep praying for them. I don't know if you noticed, but I prayed by name for the owner of the olive tree. I'm going to continue to do that because as long as he has breath, he can repent. And that's just one person. We have family members that we forget to pray for who have not trusted in Christ for salvation. It's easy to look at those who are blatantly acting as God's enemies and forget to pray for our own children to trust in Christ for salvation. Be hopeful and continue to spread the seed. God is a history. Of saving the most unlikely people. Ask Paul someday, or Peter, or any of his disciples. Look through history at people like the slave trader John Newton, who wrote the song that we're going to sing here in just a minute. Be hopeful. The hard heart, the shallow heart, the divided heart, and the, and the faithful heart, none of them are, are any match for God's eternal loving kindness, for His steadfast love. No matter what hearts are out there. Let's pray together. Father, remind us of the good news of Jesus Christ. that it would be forefront in our minds that we would be praying for one another, that we would pray for each other's kids, that we would pray for each other's parents, for each other's siblings. I pray that we would pray for the lost that need Jesus. That not only would we pray, but that we would We would be casting the seed, that we would be sharing a reason for the hope that is within us, and the only reason is Christ. That we would share the good news that Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remind us of the truth of the gospel today, Lord. Keep us safe as we leave this morning, as we go home. Father, I pray that we would be marked by a people who hold fast to to the Word, the Logos, the Jesus Christ. Word become flesh. And so, Lord, as we come to the table this morning to proclaim the death of Christ until He returns, we come uh, humbly, knowing that we can't, we can't come to the marriage supper of the Lamb without an invitation. And yet we come rejoicing, that you have opened up a way for salvation for us through Jesus Christ, his blood and his body. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.